0: It's official now, continuous delivery has a downside. I think we're in agreement, as we always are.
1: If you learn Erlang, you're probably super into making reliable distributed systems. C++ is exactly the sort of thing that you don't want to be writing in distributed systems in. When you switch from an unsuitable language to a suitable language, you often end up with amazing advances in productivity and in reliability. The techniques that worked in the past are used up. You need to find new techniques, Like I think that's the same with languages. Hi, I'm Paul Berger, founder of CircleCI.
0: I'm Edith Harba, CEO and co-founder at LaunchDarkly.
1: And you're listening to To Be Continuous, a podcast about continuous delivery and software development.
0: You can get in touch with us anytime at our Twitter handle, at ContinuousCast.
1: The show is brought to you by HeavyBit. To learn more, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library, home to great educational talks from other developer company founders and industry leaders.
0: So today was our episode 10, and Paul and I took a pretty sweeping retrospective at where languages come from and why they continue to evolve. So Paul, believe it or not, I have a bet about a computer language. Okay, that sounds interesting. So I was catching up with a friend who started a company, and he's the CEO, and he told me that the company had decided to have their main application written in Erlang. Okay. And I know the various popularity of all languages because I look at this myself when I see what things we're going to build an SDK for. Erlang has very low adoption. Yes. I'm not really making a judgment on whether it's a good or bad language, I'm just saying when we looked at what we were going to support, Erlang was not at the top of the list.
1: I think, I think you've got something which is, which is factually correct there.
0: Yeah. So my bet with my friend who's a CEO is that he will regret having picked Erlang.
1: Oh, interesting. Okay,
0: not as I said, any judgment about whether or not it's a good language, but that it will be increasingly difficult to hire people who know Erlang.
1: Okay, well, this is something I definitely have an opinion on. Circle, as you know, is built in closure. Closure is a niche language at at, at best. It's uh, it was growing rapidly, but it, it's probably kind of flattening out at the moment. But niche languages are amazing in many different ways, especially functional ones. And there's so many reasons why they're amazing. But the, the first, <laughs> and I, I imagine hiring is something that that, that, that your friend was worried about or, or something like that.
0: Oh, that's what I worried about. I mean, we chose a niche language. We're in Go. Okay, but um, you know, my co-founder
1: John's, like it's a niche language now, but it is only picking up. Right. So, so, so that one is growing. But niche languages are are actually fucking amazing for hiring because when every startup in the world is written in rails, and you're trying to hire a Rails developer. You're competing against every single company that's out there, and you've no differentiators.
0: Well, it's hilarious because I remember in San Francisco in 2007, I went to a party, and they were talking about how Rails was their differentiator.
1: Right. So, it, like, it, I literally remember this. I was yeah, like, yeah. It was, and it would have like, been in 2007.
0: Yeah, it was like because I was like, how do you manage to hire engineers? They're like, oh, we're Rails.
1: Everybody yeah. wants to work in Rails.
0: And right. then I remember like eight years before that, in 1989, Java. Yep. Java was the hottest. Eighty nine. Oh, I'm not that old, Paul. Come I, on. I thought
1: that, I thought you said eight nine nine nine. nine yes, nine. exactly. So <laughs> so actually, Paul Paul Graham had an essay about this. I don't remember the name of the essay, but he 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 he, he talked about how at some point Java had been you know an exciting differentiator, um, and then you could find the great hackers by the fact that they that they knew Java. Yeah, I mean, I remember going to Java one when it was the hotness. Right. right. And now it's like. The and now knotness. it's old and corporate, yeah. right? There were cycles. You know, Python used to be a thing that you only knew if you went and learned it yourself. You couldn't. You couldn't learn about it in college. There weren't. There weren't these boot camps. No one was was doing it except to, because they were super into learning the latest things. And there's there's this correlation of of great hackers being super into great things, which you may or may not or new things. You may or may not agree with that, but. It's an opinion that's out there. So if you're into a niche language, like the people who learn Erlang are the people who, well, okay, there's all the telecoms people who learned Erlang, and I don't know if that's going to be helpful or not. But if you learn Erlang, you're probably super into making reliable distributed systems.
0: Yeah, but don't languages kind of start to peter out? I mean, they, 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 if, if they don't start to catch fire, if they're mm-hmm. not getting new blood, I mean, right. somebody who's really into the cool new thing like Erlang, haven't they already moved on to Scala?
1: Um, if they're if they're already look if they're only into it as as the cool new thing then yes but if Erlang you know appealed to their certain sense of who they are or a certain sense of how they think uh, certainly closure for me was the certainly the language that I hate the least <laughs> out of all languages I've tried with Python a distant second and c- c- certainly like in the future when I'm when I'm well I probably won't be looking for jobs but theoretically if I was looking for jobs you know closure would be a major differentiator for me. Because you've tried other languages and this is the one you like. I've tried So many other languages. So and many. It's it's and um, closure is amazing. And I haven't tried Erlang, language to be fair. But there's uh, my, my, my friend used to work at this video game startup. In fact, I used to work at this video game startup. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was called uh, it was called Demonware. Um, D- did Did you forget you'd work there? Or just like uh, I, I wasn't there for very long. Um, but so it's it's now Activision Europe or Activision Ireland or or something along those lines. But uh, it used to be called Demonware and they made I mean they made this this ma- matchmaking software. And so matchmaking is you're playing online gaming and you're you're trying to make a match. There's all these bunch of people, right? And they they'd written the uh, the software initially in C plus plus, and oh, uh, I, I hear you're pretty familiar with that that kind of software. Very familiar with C And no, C plus is the a, the matching. C++ is exactly the sort of thing that you don't want to be writing in distributed systems in. And they, it, was, it was riddled with bugs, it was awful. And then this guy Vlad, and I don't know how apocryphal this story is, but this, this is how it was told to me, and I know Vlad and he's very smart. Vlad came along and he rewrote their matchmaking software in about nine days, I think, in Erlang. And it solved all of the problems that they had ever had in C++. Because Erlang is a system that's designed for building these things, and when you switch from an unsuitable language to a suitable language, or from a lower-level language to a higher-level language, or whatever it is, you get you get closer to the domain that you're trying to solve. You you often end up with with amazing advances in in productivity and and in uh, reliability versus versus doing it you know kind of the old shitty way.
0: That's I think. You said something very interesting, which is basically that languages are evolving for custom purposes,
1: right, right, right right,
0: like, because what you said about Erlang and how it's really perfect for this high scalability use case, yeah, yeah. I mean, that might not be true at all if you're looking for, like, say, a mobile app
1: absolutely. So Erlang is something which is which is designed for telecoms yep and te- telecoms is something where fundamentally you know de- packets are coming in and, and you're trying to do some transformation on them and, and, and get them out to another place Just trying to decimize them something along those lines and the whole purpose of it is is be super reliable don't you know this is this is telephone switches you know yep. don't, don't let some sort of systematic failure take down the entire system and you know when you when you compare that to something like rails, Rails is something which is built for making websites super quickly and yeah right and if you're going to make a website super quickly like you know start now finish before lunch yeah rails is is your friend and erlang is not going to be your friend and if you're looking to make telephone switches erlang is your friend and rails is not going to be
0: yeah i mean this this comes back to something we've talked about before just a trade off between like time quality and features
1: right right i mean it's 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 all tied to it and those those languages have certain properties that, that make it easier to build certain features in certain niches.
0: Have you ever seen a case where somebody just had the wrong
1: language for the wrong use case? Oh, all the time. It, it, it happens absolutely all the time. And the, the reason, people rarely pick languages for the domain that they're writing it in. People typically pick languages because it's the language that they know or it's the language that they can hire in. Yeah. So you have all these big enterprises who are writing everything in Java. Because that's 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 what you do. Like, there's an unwritten rule. In fact, it might even be written somewhere <laughs> that if you're an enterprise, you have to write things in Java or C sharp if you're a Microsoft shop.
0: Uh, yeah, this is hilarious to me because I just remember in 2000, I was working for a company and Java was very counterculture
1: back then. Right. And if you look at the companies that were built around 99 that were counterculture, like Google, for example, has tons of software written in Java, right? Yeah. And they were like, one of the biggest counterculture companies that there is, and then it took a you know that they, they, they had this foray into Python, which never really went anywhere. and Now they're kind of super into Go, but they were you know they were building in this counterculture language that that eventually became the the enterprise language.
0: Yeah, it's funny because um, so I was at Vignette, which was built on um, Tickle. Okay. Which is actually very good for holy one. shit.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And then they tried to move to Java because Java was the hotness. And it turned out that Java was just absolutely just not the right thing. Interesting. For what were they, were they
1: doing out. Like a lot of string processing? Uh,
0: well, they were content management and they were deploying between different systems. And just, it was when the Java standard was really early. I see, okay. So it was basically a mass revolt around all of our customers who'd built V6, Yeah. was our Tickle version, and then we tried to shove this V7, which was Java, with no migration path, and we're like...
1: Oh, God. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's... The question of the big rewrite. The big rewrite never works. Spolsky has this big article about the Netscape rewrite that was supposedly a disaster.
0: Yeah, to tie this back into continuous delivery, that's one argument for continuous delivery is there's never a big rewrite, there's just many. Right.
1: Many small rewrites. You, know, you, you you take one system, you move it off into another service, you write it in its own specific language or technology, and then you... you you know, do the migration and then you delete all that code after the, the migration is done.
0: Yeah, it's actually how uh, so my company Launch Darkly is picking up customers. Oh, really?
1: You have a company called Launch Darkly? Yeah. I, I, what, what, what does it do?
0: I, I'm really happy you wore the t shirt today, by the way.
1: <laughs> I, I have several at home now.
0: <laughs> you could get a hoodie too if you want. So, my company Launch Darkly is feature flags as a service. So, basically, the ability to roll features out to your own users to permission them for different users and to experiment with them. Mm-hmm. And what we're seeing with some of our own customers is they built this custom for themselves, right. but they just built it deep into their app. And now when they're trying to migrate to new language, they're still like, wait a second.
1: Interesting. Yeah.
0: We're going to have to rewrite not only our app, but our framework too, and we don't really want to rewrite
1: our feature flag framework. So, it's, it's, it's funny. We, we, we see this exact problem. So, we, we, we at CircleCI just switched to using LaunchDarkly. Um, and before and, that, we had and like. Thank you for wearing the t shirt. Yeah. Thank you for the t shirt. So, we, we had, I think, maybe five different feature flags implementations in our code base. Yeah. In, d- in different points. One, one was for users, one was for organizations, one was for different machines, one was for a different version of software. There, there, there was tons and tons of feature flags. You could opt into experimental stuff, we could opt you in. It was you know, They were all over the place and i mean we, we, we also see this when we when we're selling circle ci that that we go into an organization and they've got a bunch of different ci systems yeah. one team is on you know buildbot from from 2003 or oh or, or something God. like that someone's using jenkins uh, a bunch of teams have have moved to circle and they want to get everyone else over to circle you see the same i mean adoption cycle throughout the enterprises that that you have some teams that are that are leaders in in uh, and, and that are explicitly asked to be the bleeding edge, like the the labs teams who are using GitHub and who are using Heroku and who are using Circle CI and that sort of thing. And then there's the rest of the teams who are using ClearCase and, and C Sharp and and that sort of thing, and trying to sort of trying to learn from the labs people to be able to to ship faster.
0: And that's interesting because that's very meta because one of the things that LaunchDarkly enables is labs features.
1: Right. Where did we start? Erling. Erlang, okay. So there's kind of this this idea in in talking about Erlang about the shifting role of languages in in, in the space, right? So so you were talking about people were using Tickle, people were using Python, people were using Java and Rails and and Go and, and Clojure Closure and and all these things. So what what we see is is almost like a continuous delivery in in the programming language space.
0: Yeah. Well, and then uh, does it reach its limit where you have something that is too custom built? Because I have a couple examples. Oh, go
1: for it. Well, because you said a language for every use case, right?
0: But I think if you get too niche, you get to the point where you simply can't hire people, or nobody's interested in your language.
1: I agree and I disagree. But give me your examples.
0: Oh, um, so I'm not. I'm not going to name names, but uh, companies that have no customers, but have spent two to three years trying to come up with their own language, because it's, it's just then a barrier to adoption. Right. I mean, because y- y- it's like not only do you have to have this product that nobody
1: wants, if you want to use it, you have to learn a language. Right. 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 Now, you could say that, but uh, isn't that how 37 Signals built Rails? I mean, m- maybe they, they, they almost certainly didn't spend two years not shipping a product, but they, they built Rails for their own thing, and now it became this, this massive thing, and they benefit from, from that.
0: Well, I think there's a difference between building it because you need it to build your own product mm-hmm. versus building it for
1: other people to know how to use your product. To know how to use. So, hang on. This company. Other like their customers, had to understand something about that language in order to be able to use it. Yep. Well, that was clearly an error. Yeah. So, not only did
0: you have to buy their software, you had to like train somebody to,
1: on a new language, use the software. I see. I see. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, user adoption is a major problem for startups. So, if you add new obstacles, a new programming language, uh, a new language of any kind in front of in front of users before they can use your software. I think there's going to be a problem.
0: Yeah, it was just like it's it's one of those things that's like never get involved in a land war. it's like right. never create friction, like having yeah. to learn a new language.
1: so th- I've seen lots of cases where domain specific languages have been very effective. So domain specific languages is a little language for for a little domain. I mean, I I've created a bunch of little languages myself.
0: Oh, let me I mean. That mean.
1: Uh, well, so when when I when I was doing my PhD, we we had to do code generation, and uh, so we, I was I was generating code, and and basically when when I started by generating code, it was in the there were strings in the files, and they were being concatenated, and there were variables in it, and and, and all that sort of thing, and it it just was very very unreadable. I was trying to copy like large paragraphs of code into a place, and I couldn't tell whether you know, the, the different layers of escaping and, and, and all that sort of thing that you get when you're doing string processing in uh, in various languages and what, what I was trying to generate I had a I had a C++ compiler um, or a compiler that was written in C++ which was compiling PHP into C oh um, and so there was all these different yeah I was like but why? Because this was where we were doing, and so every statement in in PHP ended up being like six lines of of C, depending on certain various things. And so what I wrote was it was a little language where I could write that paragraph and basically do pattern matching on the basis of of properties of PHP that may or may not have been present in the.
0: Is this like a compiler of
1: compilers? It it was yes. I mean the. the that, that little language had a parser and it had a like, sort of a code <laughs> generator and a, sort of an interpreter sort of thing. This is very, Very meta.
0: Yeah, yeah. We, we throw around that word. and I'm like, wow. Yeah.
1: But it was, it was really useful because it raised the level of abstraction for, for which I was writing software. It got rid of a major source of bugs and it reduced my, uh, my cycle time and the, the time to deliver new features on the basis of this incredibly.
0: Well, so what was the
1: adoption? I mean, it was only for me. Oh. So it wasn't being built for other people. So you have a, a truly micro-language. Yes, yes. I mean, essentially, I wrote a library which abstracted a certain function, and the abstraction was good, and therefore I gained productivity.
0: Does that qualify as a language, though?
1: Or- I mean, yes. If, if you write a parser for it, it's a language. <laughs>
0: that's, a, <laughs> that's, like, that's like Bigger's Law.
1: Yeah. Um, if, 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 you you look- write, if you write a parser for it, it's a language. Well, so if if you look at the the design patterns book, the the Gang of Four Java design pattern thing, one of the design patterns was an interpreter. Yep, um, and I mean th- this this is essentially that, right? You know, the, the, the it's a little language, a domain specific language, an interpreter, a bit, bit, very similar kind of pattern. So well, but, I certainly wasn't the first to come up with this.
0: That's funny. I think I think it was Jeff Atwood, but though it could be somebody else who said. Anything that can be written in JavaScript eventually
1: will be. Right, right, right. I th- I think that's a different sort of law. I think I think he's talking about things like in Scriptin, where you can compile things down to JavaScript, and I mean, basically you know, everything will eventually be on the web.
0: Yeah, I, w- I was in London. I was visiting different people who are using feature flags, mm-hmm. and one of the companies I visited was Import.io, mm-hmm. and their entire business is they take web pages, yeah, and they strip out it to make it back into structured data.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: All web pages start.
1: As structured did it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah.
0: <laughs> it was like basically they're recompiling everything back down into a database. Right. Which was pretty funny.
1: It was like everything just reduces. So we we were talking about migration patterns or you know people doing migrations. And I think this is that's almost part of the of the migration thing. You know, you're waiting for someone to get an API and they don't have an API yet. So you use something like import IO or you know scraping of some kind. Yeah. And then eventually they get an API and then you need to migrate over to it. But you could never have built your business. Waiting for that API because you needed to get to market faster or something along those lines.
0: Yeah, I mean, you could say basically all of Tripit was that, that there is no
1: universal reservation API. Of course not, no. So you used emails. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, genius. Oh, it... Yeah. yeah, it had a parser, it was a language. <laughs> it was regex. Sure. But I mean, you could argue that there is a subset of English, uh, which is emails which have flight confirmations in them. For which you wrote a parser. <laughs> well, not just flights, hotels, right? Cars,
0: and then, and, and I guess it is true because then sometimes um, people would want to know how to structure an email to send it to us so that it would get parsed.
1: Oh wow! Okay.
0: Oh, because like if you're an admin or something, yeah. Or like if you're trying to add a, you just want to forward
1: it, because
0: and... like if you want to, even I did this. If you wanted just to add an activity,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, it was a hassle to go to the website and like hand key everything. Mm-hmm. So you wanted, you wanted to know, just
1: forward to the yeah.
0: Yeah, so it was, I guess, a language. So, Paul, you you talked about how Erlang was actually good for hiring because it attracted niche people, but there's also the point where a company will find that their language has started to go extinct. Okay. Like I'd put in this category Fortran. Okay. Like the Voyager is now struggling because the space mission was programmed in Fortran. Mm-hmm. Now people don't really know Fortran so much. Right.
1: Right. Right. Um, I, I think uh, everyone saw this in the two thousands with the dot com crisis and the um, COBOL. No one knew COBOL anymore, so so the the graybeards were brought out of retirement for massive salaries and that sort of thing to you know add add two bites to to something for your two thousands crisis. That's what I was talking about.
0: Why do you think Y two K never really materialized?
1: Because it was handled.
0: So nobody remembers the crisis that was handled.
1: I mean. If you went through it, or if you were just alive at the time, you remember everyone talking about how, how the these two extra zeros are going to make all the fucking difference. But anyone anyone who had a problem with it just you know handled it, and also everyone shut everything off on at midnight. Yeah,
0: I went camping.
1: Were were you were you sure when you were coming back that there was going to be a civilization to come back to?
0: Well, I went to Yosemite. I was like, I, I like it there. I was like, I can hang out here for a while.
1: It's good because when the marauding hordes of post-apocalyptic zombies were destroying San Francisco, you'd be at Yosemite already.
0: Yeah, you know it's a fun place to hang out. It
1: was well thought out. Yeah,
0: you know I, you know, got a lot of food.
1: So l- languages ver- very obviously die. There's a life cycle of of languages, and being in San Francisco, I think we see we see the very start of the life cycle, especially the the, the shininess the. Early adoption and even you know kind of the early mainstream languages if we're going to take a crossing the chasm sort of terminology to it. and then we get bored of the late mainstream and I've actually never never looked at the latter part of, of that graph so I don't know what the what the bottom of the the rightmost thing on the crossing the chasm graph is when everything's in decline <laughs> I don't even know what you call that. Uh... <laughs> I think it's called uh, retirement. Retirement. There we go. So, fair, so there's all go. these languages which are in retirement, and there's all these languages which are in the in the late majority stage, which I think is the the unexciting phase if you're if you're here. Uh, and those are obviously the you know the Java and, and C sharp and, and and C plus plus and that sort of thing, which are which are relegated even either to Career programmer places, yeah, uh, where you never need to change your technology stack, or legacy technology which is still relevant. And I think Chrome is is maybe a good example of something which is which is written in C plus plus and is still very very relevant.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I I think you're very accurate to describe it as that cycle. It's exactly right. And I think some languages just never cross the chasm. Right, right, right. Why, why do you think some languages just never make it across?
1: I, it's it's an adoption thing. There was a very interesting talk by, uh, by Simon Peyton-Jones. He's the um, sort of head of, of Haskell, and he, he talked about how almost all academic languages die, mm. uh, and somehow Haskell managed to survive. And I, I think he doesn't quite know how, and I think that that's the case with all kind of adoption. You don't really know why this particular one, you can, you can have theories in retrospect, but there's no real good reason why one survives and something which is roughly equivalent doesn't survive.
0: Yeah, so there's a big heated topic now about the backlash around open source. Okay. Which is basically a lot of developers are tired of not getting
1: paid to work on open source.
0: To work on open source. Huh. And it's the same sort of cycle. Like, I hung out with my really good friend on Friday. He's super excited because he's maintaining this framework and like people are pinging him with questions and he feels like he's getting a lot out of it. On the other hand, like he's at his job and his job is paying him for his time. Right, right, right. I mean, and then three years later, I've seen people on the other side of that who are like, "I'm not getting paid for this. It took over my weekend to answer
1: this person." And well, then stop answering the person. I I, I can't say, but without without talking about open source, it's because I think that there's a contentious topic there. Let's let's talk about the games industry, right? There's lots of people in the games industry who are worked like on death marches, terrible working conditions, shitty salary, and they they get burnt out. Yeah, right. And then they complain about the situation, and when they eventually leave the industry, there's thousands of of not yet jaded people waiting to take their take their place. Yeah, it's like Hollywood. Right, exactly like Hollywood. And and you know if if you want to be an actor, you know you you, you have to. You know work the shitty jobs and and you know get your name out there and pass your resume around and, and once you make it great and if you don't make it or you make it into like a sort of a, this isn't a very good analogy uh, for, for open source I, I feel it's getting further and further from it. But, <laughs> but, but I, but I like your story so I was just going with it so I, I have an open source project. Uh, that 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 I'm de facto maintainer of because I couldn't find anyone else to take over. This is my PHP compiler. Every now and then I get I get an email or a GitHub issue or something about it. And basically project's dead. Yep. I'm not doing anything. Yeah, uh, and I went through a very um, stress. I mean, it wasn't particularly stressful, but the, you know, there was a period where where lots of people were asking for it, and I had to decide: was it alive or dead? You know, I don't have time to help people with it. I tried to answer emails, tried to get other people to to contribute, and like so at the end of it, I I let it die. Yeah, it was like, if your open source thing is good enough someone else will take it someone else will fork it whatever you you hand over the reins or just accept every pull request that comes and if you're if you're tired of it be tired of it you know, yeah. just don't work on it anymore and i think that this breaks down when you're when you're talking about larger projects when you're talking about linux or, or gcc or something like that where where most of the contributors are paid um or you're talking about something like um uh like rails or ember or something like that where you know the, the, there's a lot of kind of early adoption and and, and maybe not a lot of money in it yeah, or programming languages I think are good like npm and Node.js. Went through a a big sort of like, oh, we can't afford to keep this infrastructure that everyone is relying on. What are we going to do?
0: Yeah, I think open source is worthy of its own episode, so we will just put a a semicolon there, and then say, I think Zynga was really successful in gaming because they were the first gaming company to really adopt continuous delivery. Oh, interesting. Like, because the old console games were like. Yeah. You put all your effort when you talked about the death march, it was because yeah. you were putting so much effort in because you had to get it right.
1: Yeah, yeah. That that's really interesting. So you you think that the entire creation of casual gaming and social gaming and that sort of thing was really predicated on on the fact that they were able to release things quickly.
0: Yeah. I mean, it used to be. So I'm I'm leaving aside the social aspect because you can have a social aspect in yeah. a console game, like as you just talked yeah, about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you yeah, can yeah, have yeah. matching like yeah, yeah. Good games. Well,
1: you know, I, like Xbox was social. You know, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure you can because I think a major part of casual games was that they were able to iterate really quickly on the game yeah. mechanics. Right.
0: And, and that's what I mean. So they, 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 I think we're in agreement as we always are. <laughs>
1: but the reason why they were so successful is they could iterate. Right. So this is interesting. I think this is the first place where I've I've ever seen me be unhappy about continuous delivery, because it created, you know, casual games and the pay to play and and the all the bullshit which makes gaming awful these days. Wait, you're unhappy or you're happy? Unhappy. 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 I mean, the the casual games are like I sat down to play some casual game that someone told me was awesome, and I downloaded onto my phone and I played it, and then I couldn't get anywhere because I wasn't willing to spend money into it. Oh my and, god. I mean the I'd, 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 I'd happily paid, Well, I'd happily paid twenty dollars, but I hate being you know, being asked for ten cents here and, and two dollars there and like that that model of gaming like fundamentally offends me as a consumer. And I understand it's it's what has to be done, but it's what has to be done because of Zynga and because because it's exists, it's a sort of a race to the bottom.
0: Yeah, well, it's 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 they've done they've iterated their way into this that this is the the best way to extract value is not to ask for somebody twenty wow. twenty bucks up front but just instead to get them sucked in and be like quarter quarter
1: quarter. Well, it's it's, it's official the, now. Continuous delivery has has a downside.
0: Well, it's the parking meter versus the parking garage metaphor, like something that you keep feeding quarters into yeah, yeah. versus you just go and park it overnight. I see it. Wait, so so it's official. Continuous delivery makes Paul makes Paul unhappy for the first time. Unhappy for the first time. Yeah. Oh. False, so continuous delivery makes you unhappy. You know, this is oh, only,
1: only in this situation so far. I don't think I've seen another situation. Well, this is our tenth episode, so I have another situation
0: for you. Excellent. Uh so LinkedIn. Okay. So LinkedIn is getting a, a fair amount of flack right now because they're very aggressive about invites mm-hmm. and reinvites, and so you know, there's this meme floating around like
1: Oh, the, the polar bear sticking his head into the bus. Do you want to connect on on LinkedIn? Yeah, or like,
0: yeah. you know, uh you know uh Back to the Future Part three, you know, the Western Union rolls up and says
1: <laughs> Right.
0: Marty McFly, do you want to connect? And you know, the reason why they're doing all this
1: stuff is because it works. Does it work? There was a fascinating talk by Keith Raboy or Verbois or I don't know how you say his name. But it's it's the unintuitive way of pronouncing it. Who is um? He's at Coala, but I think he's is he CEO of Square, or he was the CEO of Square. I think he's at Kosla now. He, he was, was at, the CEO of Square,
0: and he was at PayPal
1: before. He was at PayPal, right? And so he, he gave this talk in the in the Y Combinator Startup School talks. Did you see it in person? No, no it was it was the it was the one where you had to be part of the class, like ah. the Stanford class, and and he gave a talk, to, and, and, and so he talked about every like KPI or every metric had to have a co metric. Oh, and. That was like one of his big three lessons. Other lessons, like have a dashboard. But the idea was that every metric can be juiced. Of course. And the way to avoid juicing leading to problems is to have a co metric. And it feels a little bit like there's a co metric for LinkedIn's engagement thing that they're not, or they've got the wrong co metric or no co metric. And it's like people are getting very unhappy. People who who don't see a lot of value from LinkedIn are getting very little value from LinkedIn, they're still kind of on LinkedIn. Uh, like I mean, I consider myself to, to to be one of these people. Like I'm on LinkedIn, I never really use it. You know, they, they they've never really found a product market fit with me apart from having a profile on it. But oh, I love LinkedIn. What do you do on LinkedIn?
0: Um, every time a new person signs up, I go and look them up on LinkedIn so I can know their role and mm-hmm. what they do. It's it's like we had Sam the other week from Reportive.
1: Right, right. And so so that's that's value for you, but not so much value for them. So LinkedIn offers a lot of value to the people who are using the, the sales packages, the recruiting packages.
0: Or just anybody who wants to
1: know more about their customers. Know more about their customers, their colleagues, the people they want to date, all, all, all this sort of thing. But... For the people themselves, there's not necessarily a massive value, and especially like you, if you're if you're in a high demand area, you're going to get tons of recruitment spam. I get tons of spam for people who want me to use their software or who oh, want yeah. to sell me their software, and especially who want to sell me consulting services. So the signal to noise ratio is, is complete shit. And at the same time, you know, I, I keep getting invites from people I don't know, or maybe I do know them. It's like, did I meet them at a conference? I, I don't really know. I got, I just I just don't get a great lot of value out of LinkedIn. And so it's trying to juice up its its metrics and trying to make me, you know, better LinkedIn person or or whatever that is. Without I feel making LinkedIn a product that I actually want to use or that I want to use more. And it's funny because like we talked about Reportive. Reportive is like the greatest product I've ever used, or one of the greatest products I've ever used. And it's owned by LinkedIn and, and it's it's amazing. But LinkedIn, the product, is not is not a great product. I'm I'm happy it's in the world, but I don't see myself wanting to engage with it more in the way that I do with Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or whatever.
0: Well, I mean I disagree. I use LinkedIn daily. Okay. I mean I I find
1: it immensely. You're in a sales role. Yeah. And you're in a recruiting role. Yeah, but if you're if you're not in one of these roles, I don't think you're going to find it useful even slightly. And you, what's that old adage about? You know, if you're not paying, you're the product. <laughs> like it, it's literally half of, or I mean, not, not even half, but like ninety eight percent of LinkedIn is the product to the two percent who are who are selling or recruiting.
0: Oh yeah, I mean, it was funny because a, a guy tried to ask me out of her LinkedIn. I never met him, and I was just like, dude, what, what are you doing? This is LinkedIn, not like right,
1: not not maybe, maybe LinkedIn should add a dating package.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I was just I was just really puzzled. I was just like, Right. What are you doing? <laughs> I I really like the idea of the anti-metric. What what are
1: some examples that he gave? I don't remember. It was a good talk though, I'd recommend looking at it. Yeah. But I I, I think the um like if you're sending out email invites or something like that, you you know, pro- probably your co-metric is you know the dissatisfaction of of some sort. So a you know, number of people who unsubscribe is probably a good Co metric for number number of people who re engage.
0: Yeah, I think there's a fine balance though that you know there's always going to be somebody who's unhappy. Like, right. Like so, an example I heard was um, like so, Gmail when whenever they do a canary release, i.e., they're pushing out new code to some people. One of the. Things they monitor is the prevalence of Gmail sucks on Twitter.
1: Right, right, exactly. And they always you, beautiful co metric. But they always accept that there will be some level of it. Right, right, and I think it's fine for there to be to be a level of it. Like you're you're trying to hit certain things, you're going to break a certain number of eggs, and the, the, there's always lots of people who are you know angry about change, ang- angry about yeah. I read this great breakage. I read this great blog
0: post by this guy. Um, you know, you talked about. There's always people who don't want progress. There's always somebody who would say the Sistine Chapel is good enough without that painting. Right, right. I, I think you wrote that. I, I think I read that. Yeah, yeah I, it was, it was, it was, was really, good. I enjoyed it. But what was your? It's were you, Was there a specific inspiration to write that post, or was? It I just... mean, the,
1: the the that was the the. It really is the future post talking about like what, why everyone was hating on Docker. I think I think it's sort of tangential to the to the current thing, but I. I there's a little bit of a correlation there. Like people people don't like change. Yeah. People people like things to the way to be the way that that it is. And you you see people talking uh, who who send out angry screeds about you know LinkedIn should be doing X or you know, better example Facebook Twitter Twitter, Twitter exactly you know, Twitter should be doing whatever. Twitter shouldn't have launched moments, they should have launched moments. They shouldn't have hearts, they should have hearts, you know that that sort of thing. And it's like they should fundamentally have Fundamentally, you know, there's the, the someone at the other end who who appreciates your screed and, and, and reads it and, and you know combines it with the 500 other, 10,000 other elements of feedback that that they've gotten and combines it with the metrics that they have and the co-metrics that they have to decide you know what they actually want to do.
0: Yeah, I mean that's the job of a product manager. Right. Exactly. You you,
1: exactly. Right. You can't make everybody happy all the time. Right. And so the the people who are complaining about LinkedIn. I think fundamentally they're right in the sense that every complaint is is right. Every complaint is accurate.
0: Yeah, I mean the thing that I didn't like. So the thing that I didn't like is they recently switched their messaging from something more like an email Mm -hmm. to now like this horrible like I am type style, which when I'm doing a business communication I don't like doing. Oh, interesting. Like when I write somebody in a business, I like start with like dear or hi.
1: Well, there's a question: Should you be doing that? I'm not sure you should. One of the one of the kind of fundamental. Parts of, of doing modern business is is authenticity, and if you're going to be talking to your customers, if it's a very formal interaction versus a very sort of informal, where we're friends, you're you're a part of the community, you're a part of the product, I, I'm very much a ladder, a form of the, a fan of the latter.
0: You're a former fan. Of I'm the- a
1: fan <laughs> of talking to your customers with authenticity, which very often means dropping the. Hey, John, at the top and the best at the bottom, and that sort of thing. And more, I am like, and less.
0: Yeah, it's funny because actually, for our biggest enterprise customers, we give them a Slack or HipChat channel. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We're like, we just they're like they're on and they ask us for stuff and we write them back. Yeah. Um, it's it's cool and fun and liberating.
1: I had a, I had an interesting conversation with with one of our very good customers. Uh, you're familiar with Rainforest QA? Oh yeah, love them. Yeah there are customers and, and you know, know them know them socially and, and, and that sort of thing and we, we sent out uh, some email I don't remember exactly what the email was and Fred who's, who's the CEO um, sent, <laughs> uh, yeah I'm telling you story <laughs> uh, and it was, it was sent out over over intercom so sent out to all of our customers goes back to like a you know intercom inbox where it's monitored by product managers or support people.
0: We use intercom too by the way
1: yeah awesome. And so Fred replies, uh, and I, I think it might have been an apology for something, or maybe there's some downtime or something. And he, uh, his reply was no, no, like dear Paul, or, or you know, <laughs> best friend. at the end of it, yeah. No, it, he just basically, in fact, he didn't basically say anything. He said the exact phrase, "fuck you."
0: That's a very Anglo-Saxon phrase.
1: It, it is a very uh, Fred is English. It's a. Uh, the, I think that's one of the oldest like Anglo saxon right, right, right. And so, so I responded to Fred. Well, so, so first, my my support people said, "Oh, I think we've got an irate customer here, Paul. <laughs> Paul, maybe you should talk to him." And it was it was routed to me, and and I replied to Fred and I said, "How about you go fuck yourself?" <laughs> so, first of all, do all irate customers get routed to you, or just Fred's? I I, I think he was routed to me because it was it was. I think you could tell him the software that, that, that I knew him or that I'd talked yeah. to him before or something like that. But the, the point that I was making is, is not that, that, that I hurl insults at, at customers, <laughs> but that you're, the, the closer you are to friends with your customers, the, you know, the, the longer they're going to be your customers. Yeah, I don't have any that I respond like that to. Right, I, I, I have about one that I would respond <laughs> that way to. But if, if I was to say, you know, dear Fred, I'm sorry that you feel this way. Perhaps we could uh, have—I don't know, whatever. Perhaps we could arrange a call to discuss your well, you know, whatever. Like it's it's an it's an inauthentic conversation. I, I I think Fred is a special use case that like. (laughs) It's it's an extreme example of making sure that you have authentic conversations with all of your customers.
0: I think it is true to be authentic. Like I remember, um, so I was working at an Internet of Things company, and this was before there was intercom. So literally, every time somebody. Register their device. I would just handwrite them an email. Right, right. Because I was so excited, and I just wanted to know more. And then I would get emails back like, "Are you a bot?" And I'm
1: like, "Nope." Yeah, no. I I I did exactly the same thing before every the first fifty or hundred customers. I wrote them an email. Yeah, I mean the first twenty I wrote them in the email before they became customers. But I, I said like, you know, why why are you mm. using? Where did you find us? You know, yeah. t- t- tell, tell me what you think. Yeah. Um, and then when I eventually switched that to Intercom, when I was spending like twenty percent of my time writing those messages, and we had enough customers to be that. And then you know, still tried to make it as authentic as possible. Customers are developers, so I put in the I put in the bottom. You know, this was, this was while this was automatically sent. You know, I'll personally read and reply to all replies.
0: Yeah, it's funny because I think everybody's kind of on this game now of personalization. I actually right. got a personalized pitch on LinkedIn Okay. from somebody who said they listened to the podcast.
1: Okay, yeah, yeah.
0: And it, like, they didn't just say they listened to the podcast; like, they quoted from a couple episodes. Right, right, right. And then they tried to pitch me. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. But like, they. Yeah, I mean, that's it's the standard thing, right? You you write a paragraph that that shows your connection to the to the human being. Uh, Hi, how are you? I see you just had a child. That's awesome. What lovely pictures you had. And then you go to the pitch.
0: Uh, And hopefully they've actually had a child.
1: Right, right. (laughs) I I don't think you should apply that to everyone.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, the worst is when you get something like hello brackets first name. (laughs) And
1: inside it says first name, not your first name. Right. So it's interesting. You see, um, have you read the book Predictable Revenue? Yeah. So everyone's read Predictable Revenue now. right? It's, it's the, the modern sales yeah. techniques. And so you start to see the emails that were in Predictable Revenue taken almost verbatim. Yeah, and it, and I, I get those emails all the time.
0: It's funny, so I was talking to my friend. Um, she's awesome, she's done sales at Yammer responses, Mixpanel. And there's just this constant evolution of sales pitches too. Right. Like One of the most liberating things the HubSpot VP of Marketing said is that what he said was not content marketing is God, which was what I expected him to say. He's the techniques that worked in the past are used up. Right. You need to find new techniques. Yeah. Like and I think that's the same with languages. Yeah. You can you can mourn the past and say, "Oh my gosh, why doesn't why is you know, I remember when SEM was really good and now mm-hmm. everybody does it. I remember when content marketing was really good and there's still niches." Right. And the same with languages. Right. I mean, where do you think languages are going?
1: Yeah, oh, that, that's uh, that's quite the the spin around from from product and sales things. Where are languages going? I mean, I, I think languages are fundamentally about raising the the abstraction. Yep, we agreed. Yeah, Th- there's a question of what what is the next level of abstraction.
0: Actually, though, um, do you know Jesse Robbins. Yeah, he had an interesting interview in ReadWrite Web about saying that he had to basically custom build everything for his new company because he couldn't really use anything that was out on the market.
1: Okay. Um, like I mean, it's a hardware device. Is that what you mean?
0: Yeah, like so he had to build his own data center, all this stuff. So it was kind of the opposite. Of build it. his own data center. He said it was the opposite of abstraction.
1: Oh, interesting. There wasn't enough latency, or yeah, he had specific constraints around latency, or something along those lines. Yep. Yeah, you you often get the, this sort of thing where where the the fundamental differentiator of your company is that you're able to take some process and do that process much much better, whereas everyone else is. Uh, Using sort of commodity, uh, commodity components, and in fact, you know, Google, you know, commodity components was their thing, whereas everyone else was using specialized components. Uh, And Google was able to succeed because they were one of the many, many reasons that Google succeeded is that they used commodity components, and everyone else was using. So they they discovered a new way of of creating data centers, or or you know, whatever it is that you're doing, achieving business, being full stack, being less full stack, you know, uh, abstracting the right things abstracting the right things is uh, a major differentiator in most businesses they found one process that, that that's better or different or gives them more success
0: no Google's kind of legendary for building everything in-house
1: right right when, when, when Google started that all their servers like used everyone else was buying you know Oracle on, on IBM expensive multi-million dollar things and Google was putting like, you know, the the, the Dell that you were using in your homeroom and they, they just figured out how to make fault tolerant software. And they were, they were ahead of the world because that's what everyone is doing now. Hi, this is Fred from Rainforest QA, ex-customer of Pool and Circle CI, and still offended human. You've been listening to the at best mediocre podcast to be continuous.
0: To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. While you're there, check out their library, home to great educational talks from other developer company founders and industry leaders.